Chapter 6, Part 2 of English Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. English Literature by Geraldine Hodgson. Chapter 6 The Treatise. Part 2. Towards the end of the 16th century, the first headmaster of Merchant Taylor's School, Richard Mulcaster, drew attention to another important educational matter, namely, that each child should be brought up to follow the occupation best suited to its capacities and tastes. This book is not very easy to obtain now, so this one passage shall be quoted and not only for what it says, but as an example of plain, racy prose of the century. Quote, Wits well sorted be most civil. Footnote. Convenient. End footnote. This I say because to avoid excessive number, choice is one principal help. For in admitting to uses only such as be fit and seem to be made for them pairs off the unfit and lesseneth the number which yet would be looked unto even at the very first how then can civil society be preserved where wits of unfit humors for service are in places of service if that wit fall to preach which were fitter for the plough, and he to climb a pulpit which is made to scale a wall, is not a good carter ill-lost, and a good soldier ill-placed. If he will needs law, it which careth for no law, and profess justice that professeth no right, hath not right an ill-carver, and justice a worse master? If he will deal with physic whose brains cannot bear the infinite circumstances which belong thereunto, whether to maintain health or to restore it, doth he anything else but seek to hasten death for helping the disease, to make way to murder instead of amendment, to be a butcher's prentice for a master in physic? And so it is in all kinds of life, in all trades of living, where fitness and right placing of wits doth work agreement and ease, and misplacing have the contrary companions disagreement and disease. End quote. Mulcaster was by birth a Cumbrian, he brings to this question of choosing our life's occupation that good sense which is not only commonly attributed to north countrymen, but which many of them really possess. During the sixteenth century, two books of poetical criticism were written, Sir Philip Sidney's Apology for Poetry, which appeared in 1580, in which he defended poetry from its opponents, and George Putnam's 
The Art of English Poetry, published nine years later than Sidney's. A very old subject of literary dispute concerns the comparative value of matter and form in literature. A comparison, that is, of the stuff of which it is made and of the manner of its making. Puttenham dealt with this in the third chapter of his third book. Here again is an instance not only of characteristic English prose, but of sound common sense about a problem which crops up in every age. Quote, Ornament, then, is of two sorts, one to satisfy and delight the ear only by a goodly outward show set upon the matter with words and speeches smoothly and tunably running, another by certain intendments or sense of such words and speeches inwardly working a stir to the mind. That first quality the Greeks called Enargia, of this word Argos, because it giveth a glorious luster and light. This latter they called Energia, of Ergon, because it wrought with a strong and virtuous operation, and figure breedeth them both, some serving to give gloss only to a language, some to give it efficacy by sense, and so by that means some of them serve the ear only, some serve the conceit only, footnote, here used for understanding, thought, and footnote, and not the ear. There be of them also that serve both turns as common servitors, appointed for the one and the other purpose, which shall be hereafter spoken of in place. End quote. Probably all critics would agree that the most stately 16th century prose is Hooker's. His object in his ecclesiastical polity was to defend the church against the Puritans, the book must always remain one of the greatest in English prose. No extracts can give a true idea of it, but this short passage on a good death may at least show how nobly and with what dignity and with what simplicity he wrote. For here there is no straining after fine language, no adornments of color, sound, or imaginative picture. Quote, is there any man of worth or virtue, although not instructed in the school of Christ, or ever taught what the soundness of religion meaneth, that had not rather end the days of this transitory life as Cyrus in Xenophon, or in Plato, Socrates are described, than to sink down with them of whom Elihu hath said, Momento moriuntur, footnote, in a moment they die, end footnote. There is scarce an instant between their flourishing and their not being. 
but let us which know what it is to die as absalom or ananias and sapphira died let us beg of god that when the hour of our rest is come the patterns of our dissolution may be jacob moses joshua david who leisurably ending their lives in peace prayed for the mercies of god to come upon their posterity replenished the hearts of those nearest unto them with words of memorable consolation strengthened men in the fear of god gave them wholesome instruction of life and confirmed them in true religion in sum taught the world not less virtuously how to die than they had done before how to live in a very different strain sir walter raleigh a prisoner in the tower writing his history of the world spoke of death disillusioned and weary of trouble he saw death as the executioner the destroyer or at best the leveller of men Quote, death puts into man all the wisdom of the world without speaking a word which god with all the words of his law promises or threats doth not infuse it is therefore death alone that can suddenly make man to know himself he tells the proud and insolent that they are but abjects and humbles them at the instant makes them cry complain and repent yea even to hate their forepast happiness he takes the account of the rich and proves him a beggar a naked beggar which hath interest in nothing but in the gravel that fills his mouth he holds a glass before the eyes of the most beautiful and makes them see therein their deformity and rottenness and they acknowledge it o eloquent just and mighty death whom none could advise thou hast persuaded what none hath dared thou hast done and whom all the world hath flattered thou only hast cast out of the world and despised thou hast drawn together all the far-stretched greatness all the pride cruelty and ambition of man and covered it all over with these two narrow words hic jacet footnote here he lies end footnote end quote hooker a man of great learning was a parish priest raleigh had frequented the gayest perhaps the most brilliant court in europe so great a difference of standpoint merits the attention of all who care to sound the possibilities of literature it is not only the form of which putnam discoursed which differs the real diversity lies deep in the thought we will leave the sixteenth century with roger ascham's pleasant advice about the upbringing of children 
This, since they are the objects of it, should interest children. Quote, the matter lieth not so much in the disposition of them that be young as in the order and manner of bringing them up by them that be old nor yet in the difference of learning and pastime for beat a child if he dance not well and cherish him though he learn not well ye shall have him unwilling to go to dance and glad to go to his books knock him always when he draweth his shaft ill and favor him again though he fault at his book ye shall have him very loath to be in the field and very willing to be in the school yea i say more and not of myself but by the judgment of those from whom few wise men will gladly dissent that if ever the nature of man be given at any time more than other to receive goodness it is in innocency of young years before that experience of evil have taken root in him for the pure clean wit of a sweet young babe is like the newest wax most able to receive the best and fairest printing and like a new bright silver dish never occupied to receive and keep clean any good thing that is put into it. Every man sees, as I said before, new wax is best for printing, new clay fittest for working, new shorn wool aptest for soon and surest dying, new fresh flesh for good and durable salting, and this similitude is not rude nor borrowed of the larder house but out of his schoolhouse of whom the wisest of england need not be ashamed to learn footnote these images of youth's responsiveness are found in several ancient authors for example horace quintilian st jerome had all used them erasmus the great dutch scholar sir thomas moore's and dean collett's friend had gathered them in one sentence in a pamphlet on education published in fifteen twenty nine handle the wax whilst it is soft mould the clay whilst it is moist dye the fleece before it gather stains End quote. End footnote. Young grafts grow not only soonest, but also fairest, and bring always forth the best and sweetest fruit. Young whelps learn easily to carry, young popinjays learn quickly to speak. End quote. Ascham's book was published in 1570 two years after his death. Mulcaster's did not appear till 1581. If we compare these passages with the others quoted earlier, we can hardly help seeing that those who wrote on education used a plainer, rougher prose than the stately style of the theologian Hooker 
or the rolling melody of Raleigh, the courtier. These two prepare us for the magnificent and great age of English prose, the 17th century. Quite apart from its religious value and its indestructible holiness, the authorized version of the Bible is a collection of unexcelled prose. Very possibly scholars can suggest a few mistranslations from the Hebrew, Greek, and Latin manuscripts, but these do not affect its matchless style. It appeared, of course, when the 17th century was just beginning its strange, struggling life. It was prophetical of the prose to come, so unique in its melody, and of the poetry of that age of political turmoil, which somehow preserved a rare delicacy and fragrance as harebells and thyme bloom on the rockiest, driest soil. It cannot be necessary to quote from a book which, as the Bible is, is in everyone's hands. Yet, since familiarity and perhaps careless reading may have blunted our senses to some chapters, it is worth while to suggest a few which may not have been spoilt by clumsy handling. Deuteronomy chapters 8 and 23 Job 26, Isaiah 17, 32, 40, 12 to 31, and 64, Amos 5, Micah 6, Zechariah 1, 7 through 13. The selections are all from the Old Testament, as the lyrical quotations in the third chapter of this book were drawn from it and the Apocrypha, because these seem, nowadays, to be even more neglected than the New Testament. The great names in English 17th-century prose are those of Milton, Bacon, Jeremy Taylor, Thomas Hobbes, Sir Thomas Brown, Thomas Fuller, John Donne, and Isaac Walton. Perhaps, if most people who read it at all did not read Pepys' diary because it is so funny, they might spare some time to admire the extreme expressiveness of his prose style. Bacon must be left for another chapter. We will begin with a fine passage from Milton's pamphlet in defense of the liberty of the press, the Areopagitica, the passage wherein he pleaded the supreme, deathless worth of good books. Quote, I deny not that it is of greatest concernment in the church and commonwealth to have a vigilant eye how books demean themselves as well as men, and thereafter to confine, imprison, and do sharpest justice on them as malefactors. For books are not absolutely dead things, but do contain a potency of life in them to be as active as that soul whose progeny they are. Nay, they do preserve, as in a file, the purest efficacy and extraction of that living intellect that bred them. 
I know they are as lively and as vigorously productive as those fabulous dragon's teeth, and being sown up and down, may chance to spring up armed men. And yet, on the other hand, unless wariness be used, as good almost kill a man as kill a good book. Who kills a man kills a reasonable creature, God's image. But he who destroys a good book kills reason itself, kills the image of God, as it were, in the eye. Many a man lives a burden to the earth, but a good book is the precious lifeblood of a master spirit embalmed and treasured up on purpose to a life beyond life. We should be wary, therefore, what persecution we raise against the living labors of public men, how we spill that seasoned life of man preserved and stored up in books since we see a kind of homicide may be thus committed, sometimes a martyrdom, and if it extend to the whole impression, a kind of massacre, whereof the execution ends not in the slaying of an elemental life, but strikes at that ethereal and fifth essence, the breath of reason itself, slays an immortality rather than a life. End quote. Jeremy Taylor, whose prose lights up the painful years of the Civil War, somewhat as, on a stormy night, suddenly the moon sheds fitful gold upon the sea, told men of two kinds of courage. The first, at some time or other, we all need in the inevitable difficulties of life. Quote, Softness is for slaves and beasts, for minstrels and useless persons, for such as cannot ascend higher than a fair ox or a servant entertained for vainer offices. But the man that designs his son for noble employments to honors and to triumphs, to consular dignities and presidencies of councils, loves to see him pale with study, or panting with labor, hardened with sufferance, or eminent by dangers. And so God dresses us for heaven. He loves to see us struggling with a disease, and resisting the devil, and contesting against the weaknesses of nature, and against hope, to believe in hope, resigning ourselves to God's will, praying Him to choose for us, and dying in all things but faith and its blessed consequence. For so have I known the boisterous north wind pass through the yielding air, which opened its bosom and appeased its violence by entertaining it with easy compliance in all the regions of its reception. But when the same breath of heaven hath been checked with the stiffness of a tower or the united strength of a wood, 
it grew mighty and dwelt there, and made the highest branches stoop, and make a smooth path for it on the top of all its glories. So is sickness, and so is the grace of God. When sickness hath made the difficulty, then God's grace hath made a triumph, and by doubling its power hath created new proportions of reward, and then shows its biggest glory when it hath the greatest difficulties to master. Happy is that state of life in which our services to God are the dearest and most expensive. End quote. The other kind, of which Bishop Taylor writes, we each want once. It is courage in face of certain death. Quote, All men are resolved upon this, that to bear grief honestly and temperately, and to die willingly and nobly, is the duty of a good and of a valiant man. And they that are not so, footnote, that is to say, who are not willing, end footnote, are vicious and fools and cowards. All men praise the valiant and honest, and that which the very heathen admired in their noblest examples is especially patience and contempt of death. Zeno Eliates endured torments rather than discover his friends footnote, reveal their whereabouts, and footnote, or betray them to the danger of the tyrant. And Calanus, the barbarous and unlearned Indian, willingly suffered himself to be burnt alive, and all the women did so to do honor to their husband's funeral and to represent and prove their affections great to their lords. The religion of a Christian does more command fortitude than ever did any institution, for we are commanded to be willing to die for Christ, to die for the brethren, to die rather than to give offense or scandal, the effect of which is this, that he that is instructed to do the necessary part of his duty is by the same instrument fortified against death, as he that does his duty need not fear death, so neither shall he. The parts of his duty are the parts of his security. End quote. Thus did the English seventeenth century base the promise and possibility of courage upon the faithfulness of right conduct. Another great Englishman, whose early life overlapped Jeremy Taylor's, John Locke, the philosopher, in one short, definite sentence, told us what is the essence of the great virtue, courage, fortitude. Quote, True fortitude I take to be the quiet possession of a man's self, and an undisturbed doing his duty whatever evil besets or danger lies in his way. End quote. We should have to go far to better that, either in matter or form. 
John Donne, perhaps the greatest of all St. Paul's deans, while he understands trouble at least as well as Jeremy Taylor, shed a bright hope over patient fortitude, which raises it above the level of sheer endurance. Quote, if some king of the earth have so large an extent of dominion in north and south, as that he hath winter and summer together in his dominions, so large an extent east and west, as that he hath day and night together in his dominions, much more hath God mercy and judgment together. He brought light out of darkness, not out of a lesser light. He can bring summer out of winter, though thou have no spring. Though in the ways of fortune or understanding or conscience thou have been benighted till now, wintered and frozen, clouded and eclipsed, damped and benumbed, smothered and stupefied till now, now God comes to thee, not as in the dawning of the day, not as in the bud of the spring, but as the sun at noon, to illustrate all shadows, as the sheaves in harvest, to fill all penuries. All occasions invite his mercies, and all times are his seasons. End quote. There, without pompous phrases or out-of-the-way words, done in the simplest language, with an extraordinary proportion of monosyllables even, conveys a succession of vivid pictures. Isaac Walton, who besides being a great fisherman was also a writer, left us biographies of five of his contemporaries among them being Hooker and Dunn. The following passage occurs in his introduction to his Life of Dunn and is a very fair instance of Walton's style and way of looking at life. Quote, if I shall now be demanded, as once Pompey's poor bondman was, Plutarch, the grateful wretch had been left alone on the seashore with the forsaken dead body of his once glorious lord and master, and was there gathering the scattered pieces of an old broken boat to make a funeral pile to burn it, which was the custom of the Romans. Who art thou that alone hast the honor to bury the body of Pompey the Great? So who am I that do thus officiously set the author's memory on fire? I hope the question will prove to have in it more of wonder than disdain. But wonder indeed the reader may, that I, who profess myself artless, should presume with my faint light to show forth his life, whose very name makes it illustrious but be this to the disadvantage of the person represented, certain I am it is to the advantage of the beholder, who shall here see the author's picture in a natural dress, which ought to beget faith 
in what is spoken. For he that wants skill to deceive may safely be trusted. And if the author's glorious spirit, which now is in heaven, can have the leisure to look down and see me, the poorest, the meanest of all his friends, in the midst of his officious duty, confident I am that he will not disdain this well-meant sacrifice to his memory. For whilst his conversation made me and many others happy below, I know his humility and gentleness were then eminent, and I have heard divine say, those virtues that were but sparks upon earth become great and glorious flames in heaven. End quote. Thomas Hobbes' writings were political, using this adjective in its original sense of concerned with state affairs and not in its modern one of partisanship. In any case, it is not possible to give a good idea of his contribution to our prose by short extracts. Sir Thomas Brown stands alone in our literature. Though his work is mainly religious or moral, he has also left behind a very entertaining treatise on vulgar errors, his style is peculiar to himself. In spite of his taste for words which he coined at his need from Greek and Latin, he succeeds in making his meaning clear. The solemn musical roll of his sentences and their picturesqueness, due to his fertile, if rather out-of-the-way powers of imagination, combined with his intensely human interest in the affairs of man's life, make him an author whom young people can love and who does not wear thin or grow stale as years turn youth into age. This passage on self-mastery from his Christian morals may appeal to any age at any time or place. For however we may wriggle, each one of us has to live and put up with our own self. Quote, Be not a Hercules Furens abroad. Footnote. Blusterer. End footnote. And a poltroon within thyself. To chase our enemies out of the field and be led captive by our vices to beat down our foes and fall down to our concupiscences, footnote, desires, and footnote, our solecisms in moral schools, footnote, blunders, and footnote, and no laurel attends them, to well manage our affections and wild horses of Plato, footnote, Plato pictured the human soul in the struggle we all have to make between right and wrong impulses, the struggle of which St. Paul writes in his epistle to the Romans, chapter 7, as two winged horses, a white and a black, yoked together in a pair and driven by a charioteer. 
the white horse has dark eyes and is a lover of honor modesty and temperance and the follower of true glory the black horse is a crooked lumbering animal put together anyhow the mate of insolence and pride shag-eared and deaf hardly yielding to whip and spur the charioteer is reason who has seen the vision of love and footnote and wild horses of plato are the highest circuses footnote circus games and footnote and the noblest degladiation footnote a sword fight and footnote in the theatre of ourselves for therein our inward antagonists not only like common gladiators with ordinary weapons and downright blows make at us but also like rediary and laquiary combatants footnote using a net or noose to catch one's enemy and footnote with nets frauds and entanglements fall upon us weapons for such combats are not to be forged at lipera footnote an island where vulcan had a forge and footnote vulcan's art doth nothing in this internal militia wherein not the armor of achilles but the armature of st paul gives the glorious day and triumphs not leading up into capitals but up into the highest heavens and therefore while so many think it the only valor to command and master others study thou the dominion of thyself and quiet thine own commotions End quote. the following passage from the last great chapter of his urn burial loses much by being taken from its context yet even so it shows brown's vast sweep of thought his mysterious picturesqueness quote, life is a pure flame and we live by an invisible sun within us a small fire sufficeth for life great flames seem too little after death while man vainly affected precious pyres and to burn like sardanopolis but the wisdom of funeral laws found the folly of prodigal blazes and reduced undoing fires under the rule of sober obsequies wherein few could be so mean as not to provide wood pitch a mourner and an urn End quote the concluding lines of cyrus's garden are no less magnificent indeed these two chapters are generally considered the high-water mark of brown's stately and curiously embroidered prose quote, all things began in order so shall they end and so shall they begin again according to the ordainer of order and mystical mathematics of the city of heaven 
though somnus in homer be sent to rouse up agamemnon i find no such effects in these drowsy approaches of sleep to keep our eyes open longer were but to act our antipodes the huntsmen are up in america and they are already past their first sleep in persia but who can be drowsy at that hour which freed us from everlasting sleep or have slumbering thoughts at that time when sleep itself must end and as some conjecture all shall awake again End, quote. End of chapter 6, part 2